traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. To understand his wounded pride, you have to know the history. Three centuries earlier, his forebear, a legendary figure named Yahan, had founded a kingdom east of the Tigris River. A century passed before the first strong Neo-Assyrian king, Ashurdan II, had wiped that kingdom away. Being Aramean, the land meant little with other land in abundance. So they did what their people had always done. They took their possessions and livestock and tents and started another journey. Moving west across the Syrian plain, with the Armenian highlands off to the north, the Yahani negotiated passage, or carved it out, from other Aramean tribes. The former Mitanni lands were lush, but already jealously guarded. So they moved further east, across the Euphrates, and into northern Syria. The man who'd led them on the trek, a figure named Gusi, adopted the regional model. He seized a city named Arne for a capital, along with as many towns and villages as his people's strength would allow. The structure mimicked that of the most important regional center a fortified city along the Euphrates called Carchemish. Nestled into a violent land, the Yahani held their own, and they were about as surprised as anyone else when, a few decades later, an Assyrian king recrossed the Euphrates, intimidated the region with a massive army, and extorted voluminous tribute. Among the tributaries, Asher Nasser Paul II recorded a man of Yahan named Gusi. In the years that followed, the Yahani renamed themselves after their second founder and became known as the Bit Agusi. Their next king, Hadram, had the unenviable task of navigating the western campaigns of Ashurnasirpal's successor, Shalmaneser III. After initially joining the rebel alliance assembled by Ahuni of Bitadini, Bitagusi was too weak or vulnerable to keep on fighting the Assyrians. Nor did they join the famous army that fought Shalmaneser at Karkar. 
But four years later, in 849, Hadram did ally with Sangara of Carchemish to withhold Assyrian tribute. The response was quick and devastating. The destruction of the Bitagusi capital of Arne, along with numerous towns and villages. But the Assyrian violence failed in its ultimate aims. Not only did the rebellion continue, but Hadram simply shifted his court to an alternate city named Muru. And 15 years later, when Shalmaneser returned to the region to annex Muru as a military base, the aged king Hadram moved once again, this time to the city of Arpad. Arpad, the current Tel Rafat, Syria, is located around 35 kilometers north of Aleppo and just to the east of the Ein Dara Temple, which I covered in detail in one of my Patreon mini-episodes. There's no evidence of settlement at Arpad prior to the Iron Age, so it was likely an Aramean foundation. Though by the time Hadram relocated there, it may have been centuries old. Since it may be a while till I get there myself, I'll quote from a site archaeologist, Satan Williams. He relates that Arpad occupies a commanding position on the local plain and is favorably situated in gently rolling limestone country. In the distance, away to the north, the landscape is crowned by the curt dag, snow-clad in spring and shimmering in the heat of summer. The rich red soil and the relatively high water table make this an extremely fertile area. High winter rainfall makes irrigation in the area virtually unnecessary, while proximity to the mountains and a desirable altitude tends to ameliorate the summer heat. The most noticeable feature is the constant wind, which blows all through the spring and summer, mostly from the north. Arpad's citadel mound stands approximately in the middle of the site, rising to a height of 30 meters and measuring 142 by 142 meters at the summit, while the base spreads out in an oval 250 by 233 meters. The outer defensive city wall has a circuit of over two miles and encloses an area of some 220 acres. When Hadram eventually died at Arpad, the kingdom was inherited by his son, Atar Shumki. And whether in response to his father's ill treatment or something less personal, it was during his reign that Arpad adopted a permanent hostility toward Assyria. As a first step, sometime during the Assyrian Civil War, Atar Shumki expelled the Assyrian garrison and reclaimed the city of Muru. He then assembled the Syrian coalition that fought Shalmaneser's grandson, Adad-Narari III, and niece, Shamu-Ramat, in 805 BC. And a decade later, Atar Shumki fought alongside Bar-Hadad II of Aram-Damascus against Assyria's vassal, Zakur of Hamath. For the next four decades, we know virtually nothing of events in Arpad apart from the names of its kings. According to historian Trevor Bryce, Atar Shumki was followed by Bar-Hadad, possibly named for his Damascene ally, 
then by Atar Shumki II, and eventually by its current king, Mati Ilu, or Mati El. As I covered last episode, in 754 BC, Mati El lost a major battle to a Syrian coalition likely organized by the Assyrian Turtanu, Shamshi Ilu. The price of the loss was the imposition of the humiliating Treaty of Katika, where Matiel was basically forced to pick up Shamshi Ilu's dry cleaning and sit for his cat on weekends, with the poetic caveat that if he didn't come through, quote, seven wet nurses shall anoint their breasts and suckle a boy, and he shall not be sated. And, you know, nobody wants to deal with that. So, yeah, given all that backstory, Matiel's pride was pretty wounded. Which is why the next time the Urartians came calling, he turned his back on the Treaty of Katika and chose to make an alliance. And it wasn't just trading one master for another. While Malachia and Kuma were pretty straight conquests, with regular tribute and Urartian garrisons, Arpad and possibly Gurgum remained independent. It was just understood that when the Assyrians returned, they'd fight on the side of Urartu. And this is probably a good time to point you back to the regional maps I posted. For Matiel, the early 740s BC brought zero word from Assyria, or about Assyria. But with the kingdom trending the way it had been, i.e. rebellions, plagues, and solar eclipses, and Urartu on hand as an iCloud backup, Assyria may have slipped off Matiel's radar as a major cause for concern which left him more free time to rule his new supersized Aramean kingdom. As I mentioned last episode, Arpad likely dominated, or outright controlled, the kingdoms of Luash and Hamath to the south. And according to historian Daniel Khan, Arpad had also seized territories from both Patton in the west and from the former Bit Adini in the east. Off to the northeast was the kingdom of Carchemish, where, in a seamless transition from our discussion last episode, the regent Yaririd installed his charge, the young prince Kamani, on the throne. We're lucky to have a few of Kamani's inscriptions, and from them we can learn a few things. First, that contemporary Carchemish was exceedingly prosperous, and second, that Kamani liked to go big. Because instead of erecting a statue or a buttress or even a new temple, Kamani decided to refound a city and name it after himself. Astele records that the ruler Kamani, country lord of the cities Carchemish and Malazi, and Sasturus, first servant of Kamani, bought the city Kamana from the men of Kanapu, apparently for the price of 600 mules. Though the city already existed in some form, Kamani planned a major refurbishment. He records appointing a mayor, commissioning the engraving of frontier stelae, giving donations to leading citizens, listed as pairs of fathers and sons, and funding celebratory banquets in several of his holdings. 
So, as far as we can tell, the Assyrian absence was a time of peace and prosperity, with one fairly prominent exception. Nestled between Gurgum, Patton, Carchemish, and Arpad was the tiny, bite-sized Aramean kingdom of Samal. In some respects, its history tracked with that of the kingdom of Arpad. According to Bryce, during the last decades of the 10th century BC, a tribal chieftain named Gabar laid the foundations of a small kingdom on the eastern slope of the Amanus range in southeastern Anatolia. And just like Arpad was known as Bit-Agusi, Samal was also known as Bit-Gabari. A few episodes back, we discussed how Samal had two population groups, one Aramean, the other Neo-Hittite, with their king Kilamua trying to stay neutral by writing his inscriptions in Phoenician. Kilamua had been followed by a king named Carly, with a Q, then by the current king, Panamua I. By the early 740s, Panamua had been ruling Samal for over 40 years as a loyal Assyrian vassal, which, given Samal's size and general exposure, probably made a good deal of sense. Or, well, it had until recently. Because with Assyria in decline and Urartu in ascendance, Samal was now surrounded by Urartian allies and vassals, as well as other longtime enemies like the Kingdom of Quay. You can tell that the old king was feeling the pressure. In a contemporary inscription, Panamua pleads that Whoever of my house seizes the scepter in Samal, sits on my throne, and reigns in my place, may he not stretch his hand with the sword against my house, either out of anger or violence. May no one be put to death, either by his bow or by his command. If you're looking for a bright neon sign flashing instability and contested succession, it doesn't get much clearer than that. On Panamua's death in the early 740s, all of his nightmares came true. As Bryce relates, his son and successor, Barsur, was overthrown and killed, along with 70, yes, 70, of his brothers. Barsur's son, Panamua II, somehow managed to escape the slaughter and flee to the Assyrian court. Meanwhile, the new Somalian king, whose name isn't recorded, reversed his predecessor's policies, aligning himself with Arpad and Gurgum, and ultimately the Urartian Empire. He then proceeded to conduct a purge of all of his predecessor's loyalists. Bryce quotes a text recording that the new king made ruined cities more numerous than inhabited cities, and filled up the prisons, apparently with the assassinated king's supporters. Given the previous dynasty's predilections, the axe likely fell hardest on the Neo-Hittites, with the Aramean population reasserting their local preeminence. Whether Mati Ilu of Arpad had engineered the coup or not and there's a decent chance that he had. He must have been pleased with the outcome. A strong Neo-Hittite-leaning Assyrian vassal was now a weak Aramean-dominated ally of Urartu. 
Samal may have even become a full-on vassal of Arpad. And I mean, call it what you want, Greater Aram, All of Aram, Upper and Lower Aram, or just plain old Aram, northern Syria was now the kingdom of Arpad. Watching Panamua flee off to the east, Matiel may have given a few stray thoughts to conditions in Neo-Assyria. Much like the earlier civil war, the region was radio silent. But the Polaroid snapshot had looked pretty clear. A tottering dynasty that owed its position to a strong but elderly Turtanu. When you added the rumors of plagues and rebellions and even talk of a civil war, well, maybe Urartu didn't need to invade. Just let the whole disjointed, hollowed-out empire collapse under its own brutal weight, then swoop in and claim all the good parts. And if Urartu became a problem in turn, well, that was a problem for later. In 743 BC, Matiel received an urgent dispatch from Sarduri II of Urartu. He was told to assemble his troops, cross the Euphrates, and enter the kingdom of Kuma. Once there, he'd be joined by Sarduri II and the armies of Urartu, Gurgum, Kuma, and Malacha. The reason? Assyria apparently had a new king named Tiglath-Pileser III, and he was planning to come west and reclaim his Syrian holdings. Now, this may have been all that Matiel heard, but just for fun, let's imagine that once he brought his army to Kuma, Sarduri II was a bit more forthcoming with his senior regional ally. The story he told would have likely gone something like this. Two years earlier, in 745, Tiglath-Pileser, the governor of Kalhu, had launched a revolt against Ashur-Nirari V. After winning the ensuing conflict, Tiglath-Pileser executed his main opposition, including Shamshi-Ilu and probably the king, and took the Assyrian throne. And, just to mention it, ended a line that had ruled Assyria for well over 400 years. After installing loyalists in all senior positions, Tiglath-Pileser began his reign by tearing the Zagros region of Namri away from Urartian control. Ashur-Nirari previously launched two failed attempts to do the same thing but the new king succeeded with relative ease. And there may have been something in Sarduri's tone that sounded a note of concern. The Assyrian army that arrived at Kuma was led by the king himself. And I'm sorry to say that, apart from that nugget, we have zero details of the conflict. We only know that the outcome was an Assyrian victory. The Urartian army was driven from the field and forced to return to their homeland, which left the Syrian riverine kingdoms in the hands of Tiglath-Pileser. According to Bryce, toward the Neo-Hittite kings of Malacha, Kuma, and even Gurgum, Tiglath-Pileser was disposed to be merciful. He reinstated them on their thrones as his tributaries and accepted their pledges of loyalty. 
But as Bryce also notes, and you may have guessed, our pod was an entirely different matter. In later inscriptions, Tiglath Pileser blamed the king of Arpad for assembling the whole coalition. Mati El, the son of Atar Shumki II, fomented rebellion against Assyria and violated his loyalty oath. To the kings of Hatti and Urartu, he sent hostile messages against Assyria and made the lands hostile. Sarduri of Urartu, Sulumal of Malachia, and Tarhulara of Gurgum came to his aid. And as Mati El retreated with his vanquished army, the Assyrians inexorably followed. They burned and laid waste to the Syrian countryside, killing any forces that stood in their way, before eventually surrounding the king in his fortified capital all of which was troubling, but not, you know, unduly so. Our pod was a very tough nut to crack, and Mati El knew that if he could endure the siege for the next few months, the Assyrian campaign season would end and the army return to the fields. Or if the Urartians struck them closer to home, they might even break off sooner. Once they left, the Aramean kingdoms could regroup, rearm, re-strategize, and work up a stiffer defense. But as the months dragged on and the siege remained firm, Matiel was confronted with an ominous truth. The Assyrian king and his massive army were going absolutely nowhere. It made zero sense. How could a usurper, barely two years on the throne, feel comfortable enough to stay far from the capital, pursuing his enemy's destruction? Which is a really, really good question. But it didn't change the fact that it was the case. As the siege rolled into its second year, Matiel may have still clung to hope. Surely sometime soon, the king must return home to address the affairs of his empire. Surely Sarduri would use the king's long absence to seize more Assyrian territory. But as the year dragged on, there was only silence. No homegrown rebellions, no news from Urartu. Nothing at all but dwindling supplies and a tightening circle of iron. It's a near certainty that, at some unknown point, Matiel offered Tiglath-Pileser a bribe to break the siege. Less likely, though certainly possible, he may have offered to surrender the city, or even himself, if the people of Arpad would be spared. I tend to imagine that each attempt was met with a stony silence. To be honest, we'll never really know, because... As Bryce points out, the section of Tiglath-Pileser's annals, which must have given details of the siege, is missing. Sometime in the third year of the siege, under conditions that are entirely a mystery, the city of Arpad fell to Tiglath-Pileser III. Unfortunately for us, there's zero mention of the fate of King Mati-El. Bryce speculates that he may have fled the city before its fall and taken refuge in the mountains, 
Syrians, as other refugees from Assyrian authority had done. Or he may have been captured and deported to Assyria, or he may have simply been executed. Like Hazael with the capture of Gath, the fate of Arpad was designed as a statement of intent. And maybe it's not too surprising that a king patient enough for a three-year siege was neither senselessly bloodthirsty nor wasteful. There was no mass slaughter of Arpad's citizens, nor was the city razed or burned to the ground. But there was a price to be paid. Tiglath-Pileser made Arpad the capital of a new Assyrian province, to be ruled by an Assyrian governor backed by Assyrian troops. A large percentage of the population was forcibly deported to Assyria and replaced with settlers from other parts of the empire, which meant that, apart from retaining its name, Arpad ceased to exist as a regional entity. It was a staggering blow for the Aramaeans, and a potent lesson to the other kingdoms on the ramped-up cost of rebellion. While he was in the area, Tiglath-Pileser put one more piece on the board. I mentioned earlier that Panamua of Samal had fled to Assyria in the wake of a violent coup. Well, Tiglath-Pileser brought him along, killed the usurper, and installed him as King Panamua II of Samal. According to historians Herman and Schloen, Somalian territory was also expanded at the expense of Arpad and Gurgum. Tiglath-Pileser then received tribute from most of the Syrian kings, including Eni Elu of Hamath, Razian of Damascus, Menachem of Samaria. Tubail, or Ithobaal II of Tyre, Sibitbail of Byblos, Tutamu of Paton, Awariku of Quay, and several of the kings of Tabal. In one interesting twist, Kamani of Carchemish had apparently died and been succeeded by the son of his new chief advisor, Sestura. The odd part being that we know Kamani'd had several brothers— I mean, we have reliefs of them all playing knucklebones together. And the fact that none of them were next on the throne suggests a dynastic coup. Either way, the new country lord of Carchemish was Pisiri, the son of Sastura. And he's also recorded as giving tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III. As the king and his army returned to the east, it's a safe bet that the Syrian consensus was, well, okay, that just happened. I mean, a king as strong as Asher Nasser Paul II or Shalmaneser III, but with actual plans for the empire? That was new and threatening and generally unwelcome. As they summoned their advisors and ordered more wine, the rulers of Syria had a heightened awareness that everything they and their forebears had built might soon be washed away. The Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. 
along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.